brought to you by Gorski Wellness and the possibility of a better you. Are you feeling sluggish? Ready for a change? Need more energy? Up for a bigger challenge? I'm Moira Gorski, retired nurse and wellness advocate. For over 22 years, I've been helping people live healthier lives while making small changes each and every day. Those small changes lead my clients to living a healthier lifestyle with markedly better health. As a brand ambassador for the Shackley Corporation, the most clinically proven wellness company in the world, I guide my clients to make healthier choices each day with their food, supplements, skincare, workouts, and mindset. They say getting started is half the battle. Let's make healthy happen together. If you're ready for simple, natural, sustainable solutions to feeling and looking your best, let's connect. You'll find a link in the show notes or reach out to me at moiragorski.com. Here's to a better you. The critical component is connection, uh, not just to be connected to receive, but also to give. Welcome to the Juggling the Chaos of Recovery podcast, where we focus on health and wellness and overcoming all types of addictions. You're in the right place if you're a mom, dad, sibling, or caregiver who has a loved one who is or was struggling with an eating disorder or any other kind of addiction. In a time where everything seems heavy, I'm here to bring you a very real yet lighthearted take on what the heck we're all supposed to do with our lives while we care for our loved ones who are struggling. One thing holds true throughout it all. You can't juggle the chaos without smiling, at least a little bit. Well, welcome to another episode of the podcast. I'm your host, Moira Gorski. So glad that you are back here listening. And um, uh, for us, it's the end of the summer. So hope you've all had a great summer whenever you're, um, if you're listening to it now, or um, again, just appreciate you coming back to listen. And I love the connections that I um, make because of this podcast and um, the guests that I get um, that I'm allowed to bring on here and tell their stories. And so Today, I've got a, a cool dude that's coming on, uh, Dana uh, Kral, who is um, my guest today. He has a podcast himself called I Kissed Alcohol Goodbye. He's newly into sobriety, but it doesn't matter. I mean, he's chosen that and he has a story and um, he wants to help other people with that story. So we're going to have a great conversation today. So welcome, Dana, to my show. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, you are very welcome. And uh Again, as we talked before, I think there's a lot of cool things that I am interested to learn from you, from your story. And I know if I'm interested, then my audience is also interested. Yeah. Um, so as we always do, let's start with your story, um, you know, and and share the relevant content, the things that you're comfortable with. But, you know, I like to have people kind of share how things kind of evolved to the point that you realize that there was some type of issue or it was impacting your life and things like that. So I know there's a lot of stuff that's back there, but again, share the relevant things, what you're comfortable with, and we'll kind of, we'll kind of start there, Dana. Okay. Well, thanks again for the opportunity just to share my story. And I hope that it'll help somebody and, and most of all, let uh, your audience know if there's that one uh, person out there who feels like they're alone or feels like they are, they're crazy or like they are, you know, the only person who feels a certain way that maybe something will resonate and let, let them know that no, they're not alone. Because one of the things that I've discovered in the last six and a half months of sobriety is that 
that I had these unique issues. And the reality is that I'm I'm human and we are all so much more alike than we realize. It just takes uh, making a connection to to realize that. But, um, you know, my story starts uh, here in central Ohio. I grew up in the Columbus area and uh, born in 1980. So I'm sort of a Gen Xer and sort of a millennial, uh, kind of understand both generations, but grew up in a household with just a working income parents. And, uh, you know, neither had gone to college, but I had an opportunity to attend, uh, you know, they made a lot of sacrifices to send me to a college prep school. And I was able to be the first one in my family to go to college, which was a really special thing. So I'm kind of the fulfillment of your 20th century, you know, American dream sort of thing where my dad worked at the wastewater treatment plant for 26 years after he got home from Vietnam and was able to send this uh, son to college. Um, unfortunately, my dad died when I was 19 of lung cancer. He had smoked, uh, you know, he was born in the forties and came of age in the fifties and was smoking by age 12 and just smoked his whole life. And, uh, it, it ended up taking his life when he was 55 and we were best friends. I mean, I was his only son and, uh, only child and just, we were super close and he, uh, was so excited that I was getting to go and do something that he that he didn't get to do. I think he could have been, I think he could have done it, but he was kind of like the perennial underachiever. Whereas I got like the perennial overachiever uh, gene. I think I got that from my mom and not picking on her at all. It's just, you know, mom and dad were opposites in a lot of ways. And uh, just like my wife and I are opposites in a lot of ways. And uh, that's a, that's a good thing because we balance each other out. But I grew up you know, kind of with, not with a pressure that was intentional on their part, but it just created this sort of great expectation sort of experience for me where, you know, I am your classic, you know, perfectionistic people pleasing, uh, brown nosing student council, president, scholar, athlete type of guy who did all the right things and, you know, got all the, got all the praise. And the more I, more praise I received, the more I wanted it. And the more I strived for it, and it just put me on this uh, treadmill that only got faster and faster. And so, as I went through college, um, you know, I, I I started college in 1998. I thought I was going to go to law school and become a litigator, and then run for Congress one day. And you know, I studied political science. I thought that I thought that's what I was going to do. It's what I loved. But uh, it turns out I I fell in love with the army instead. I just I did ROTC in college and. Who knew the week before 9-11, I submitted my dream sheet to Army Cadet Command saying, hey, this is what I'd like to do when I commission next spring as an officer. You know, here's the jobs that I'd like to do. Here's where I'd like to be stationed. And, you know, the next week, the plane hit the the Pentagon and from what I'm told, hit part of Cadet Command and um, really screwed up our commissioning year to where, like, to this day, I'm convinced that instead of flying helicopters like I wanted to do, um, I got to... Uh, fly around in the back of them and, you know, fast rope out of them and jump out of them later on as an infantry officer. And then later on as a chaplain. Uh, so, you know, I uh, basically went through my infantry officer uh, basic course in ranger school and went uh, straight off to Iraq in 2003, uh, was engaged to my now wife. We had met in college and um, up to this point, alcohol had just played a uh, kind of a standard, a, a stereotypical role. I mean, I don't think that there's a lot that's unique about my story. It's like sneaking out behind a friend's house at age 14 to 
drink a, a warm beer that we had stolen from wherever. And, you know, we all did a, that. <laughs> right. Exactly. And it, it was a rite of passage and everything, but then it became, you know, it escalated to where in the beginning of senior year, I wore it like a badge of honor, like, Oh, look, I, I drank every weekend this fall. Uh, you know, and again, I was student council president at the time. And so it's like, here I am, you know, being the goody two shoes on the one hand, but also like trying to be, trying to be cool and trying to do all these, you know, socially acceptable things and having fun and whatever. And there came a point where like in December of my senior year, uh, I think of, of high school, I, I realized like, gosh, I, I feel like crap. I've been drinking too much. And I started running every morning and I sort of like dialed back the partying. But then when I got to college, you know, my wife and I both went to a, a, a big party school, uh, Ohio university in Athens, Ohio, and it's a great school, but I mean, it, it gets its, its reputation, honestly. And my wife's one of the unicorns who didn't drink there. And uh, my hat's off to her and the others who, who went there without drinking. Uh, because especially, you know, in the ROTC culture, it's not the military yet. I mean, it's it's military-ish because uh, you're just cadets and you're college students and you're not really in the army yet. But you might as well be in socially because you're already kind of like forming these little, you know, this small cohort of brothers and sisters that you do everything with and that you, you sweat and bleed and train with every day and, um, and you drink and you run around with. And so by the time I got to being a commission officer though, uh, after college and now here I am doing my infantry training and recognizing, like, as soon as I finish this infantry training, I'm going straight to Iraq. It sort of sobered me up, so to speak. I just, I remember during my infantry officer training, my buddies were still kind of going out downtown to get drunk and like, you know, hit on college girls or whatever uh, from the local school that was there and outside Fort Benning. And I just had kind of got, gotten over that phase of life. It just didn't appeal to me anymore. And at that, at the time I was talking to my now wife and, you know, I realized, gosh, this is what my, a friend of mine would call a Marion girl. She wasn't a date. She wasn't this girl that I'm going to date and just kind of like run around with that, but fling with like, this is a girl that, you know, is, is a young woman who I would, you know, want to be my wife and the mother of, of our children. And she is, and I'm really glad that I made that decision. And, and because of the wars and because of the way things kind of shaped up for me with my next job that I'll talk about in a second, I really didn't drink a lot from my early 20, from like age 23 to probably age 32, 33, I really didn't drink much. And part of the reason is because I felt called to ministry. Um, I, I went to Iraq for that first tour in 2003, came home. And then um, right before I was going to go back to Iraq in 2005, I got hurt. I had a heat stroke on a morning run and had 107.6 core temperature mm. and could have died and thankfully didn't. And I wasn't really even severely hurt by it, which I still stacked just kind of a miraculous thing. Uh, but they, my unit very wisely did not allow me to go back to Iraq because, you know, once you've had a heat injury, you're more susceptible to having another one. And, you know, why send a guy to Iraq that could die from just having his, his gear on, let alone, mm -hmm. you know, getting shot at or something. So, so I was left home and it was hard. It was harder than being deployed because um, there's a lot of stigma around being with a rear detachment commander, but it's important work. It's essential work. And I had my commander tell me like, I can't succeed over here if you don't succeed back there. And, you know, one of the, one of the commanders in my unit had said, we uh, follow 
the tradition that a lot of Native American tribes used, which was you leave your bravest warrior home. And he said, you know, we left our best guy back to serve, to be with you because we, you know, if we get hurt or killed or if anything happens at all with our family back home, we want to have someone that we know we can trust mm-hmm. to take care of them. So I, that was, that helped, but still as a warrior, you know, you want to go be with, uh, with your guys and gals. And especially as a junior officer who had combat experience that hadn't happened since Vietnam. So it was like, Oh my gosh, I'm missing out on a chance to go back as a junior captain after having been there as a Lieutenant. So in the midst of all this though, I wasn't drinking, uh, because our little church off post off the base was in between pastors. And they had asked me to preach and teach a few times because I, you know, I'm good at public speaking. I enjoy it. And, uh, being a leader is kind of like it had become part of my DNA by that point as an army officer. So I was like, sure, I'll teach him. Sure. I'll lead a Bible study. Sure. I'll fill in the pulpit, whatever. But when the deployment was over and, or during that deployment, and once the new pastor had arrived at our church, he heard me preach once and said, you're feeling God call you to ministry, aren't you? And I said, yeah. And so my, um, my unit supported me leaving active duty to go to seminary to become a chaplain candidate. And so I spent 2007 to 2009 still on the sidelines, uh, went to Fuller Seminary in Pasadena, California. And uh, it's a great kaleidoscopic seminary. A lot of, I mean, dozens of denominations, dozens of countries represented there. Uh, Los Angeles itself, obviously one of the crossroads of the world. Mm-hmm. Great place to, to train for military ministry. And so I made it back to active duty in early 2010, just in time to go to Afghanistan for, I had missed the Iraq surge, but I made it back for the Afghanistan surge. And as difficult as that year was, um, and it was, it was hard. We were in a very bad area and this was when casualties were, were bad. And I was in a support unit. So I was not out on foot patrols with guys while they were getting blown up, but I was seeing them as they came back and through my unit's uh, combat hospital. And so there were just a lot of things that happened that year. A fellow chaplain was killed uh, that I had to go and cover down for him. That hadn't happened since Vietnam. There was no training manual for how do you how do you fill in for a dead chaplain? And uh, as you know, it was it was a harrowing experience, but all of it felt like a validation. Like okay, I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. Mm-hmm. And through all this, I wasn't drinking. Uh, I when I got home from that deployment, I was too busy. Like I was too busy to drink. The army was like, hey, you're a former infantry officer. You are airborne ranger qualified. We're going to send you some airborne ranger units to be the chaplain there. So it wasn't until 2013 that I had gotten to my dream assignment, which was uh, in an actual ranger battalion that deploys overseas. I spent a year and a half in the ranger school as a chaplain there to students and instructors where I had been a student um, almost a decade before. But then while I was there, I was hired to go to third ranger battalion, which is a very legendary unit. It is the unit from Black Hawk Down in Mogadishu, uh, and I had the great honor of serving there for a couple of years, including uh, one deployment to Afghanistan with them. And um, there was a, unfortunately a mass casualty while we were there, almost on the 20th anniversary of Mogadishu. And so that was another harrowing experience, but it was like, no, but I, but I, I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. And I had people tell me, you're doing a great job. Like you're, you're the best chaplain I've ever served with. And these are some people that had served with some pretty amazing chaplains. So again, all the great expectations fulfilled, right? Here I am early thirties coming into my own and uh, feeling like, you know, I'm, I'm just now making, uh, you know, a, a solid amount of money. I've got free healthcare. I've got, you know, I'm, I'm established in my career and feeling like people are starting to take me seriously 
just as an adult. And uh, this is where the drinking really started, though, because the pressure was starting to get to me. And I, and I think now looking back, the PTSD from previous things that had happened in Iraq when I was an infantry officer and then um, those experiences that I talked about in Afghanistan on two trips there uh, started to kind of take their toll. And I started to have a beer at night just to unwind uh, and a beer or two just to to relax. And my wife called it. Uh, she said, you know, whenever you get out of the army, if you're not careful, whenever you get out, uh, you're going to have a drinking problem. And um, we thought that would be 20 years from then. I thought I was going to stay and be a chaplain for forever, as long as the army would let me. And uh turns out that we had a, 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 it's a very, very long story that I won't go into, but a lot of things happened all at once and it necessitated me leaving active duty, uh, leaving the ministry, um, we were, I was a Protestant minister and I, we became Catholic. And so we left being an arm at an active duty army, uh, chaplain family to that lived on a military base on a cul-de-sac with, you know, 10 houses and 19 kids that we knew all of them. And our kids had all these friends to coming to being a civilian national guard. I went back to being an infantry officer for a couple of years because I thought it would help me transition out. Well, it didn't, it actually made things worse. And, you know, I ended up uh, not being able, I ended up having to leave the guard. I left a command that I was immediately given a command when I went to the guard. So here I am a company commander as an infantry officer again. And I just, we came on orders to go back to the middle East, but now by this point, we've had a change of faith. We've had a change of location. We've had all these, we had a preemie in the middle of all this mm. and just, chaos. I didn't mention the births of our boys at different times that were stressful, you know, as we moved around the country. So basically this is where alcohol really started to enter the picture when we came back to civilian life several years ago. And, um, you know, a beer or two became three or four, and then it became, you know, five or six every once in a while. And then, you know, it, but I, I kept it under control, right? Like I wasn't, I wasn't getting drunk all the time. And, even when I was at, well, I wasn't really slurring my speech. I really was, it was just a heavy buzz or it was just a, you know, well, I didn't drink in front of the kids or, well, I was drinking with family and it it's okay. Finding all these reasons to make it okay. And, um, but what's happened is, I mean, by now I'm on my 12th or 13th job since then, because I just cannot find a place where I fit. Um, and, you know, my first, attempt at a civilian job out of the gate was uh, at Lowe's. And I was quickly promoted twice, like vertically promoted within 10 weeks, laterally promoted to the most difficult position 10 weeks after that during a corporate restructure. And my nickname among the sales on the sales floor, among all the associates was spaz. And rightfully so, because I was waking up in the middle of the night, couldn't go back to sleep because I'm thinking about some lady's fridge that is it going to be on the truck tomorrow? Is she going to yell at me? What am I going to have to do? You know, all these things that I had to do that my brain and my body were treating these things like they were combat. Like, mm -hmm. like when I was a jump master on a cargo aircraft with, you know, paratroopers that I was responsible for exiting the aircraft properly and not dying, <laughs> you know, like here, I, but this is appliances. Right. And I, right. So, you know, I, I learned how to read a, a profit and loss statement and was on the fast track to be a store manager and making six figures again and all these things. But I recognized like I care about people more than profits. I didn't really relish the idea of cutting people's hours to protect my bonus check as an entry level salary guy. 
entry-level salary guy. So I had this opportunity that our parish offered, uh, our priest offered me the opportunity to go and run the food pantry for uh, an inner city soup kitchen that the, the parish runs because it's in downtown Columbus. And so I thought, okay, here's a chance for me to like step again. Let's step off the crazy track. Let's just go back to doing something that's a little less crazy. We'll figure out the money, whatever. But within 10 we within 90 days of being there, I was the operations manager. And within a year, I was the director. And while I was there, I was being traumatized on a daily basis. I mean, I'm surrounded by, you talk about fight or flight and hypervigilance. I mean, it's uh, such a chaotic environment, so unpredictable. Uh, the one, one of the handful of days that we didn't have our police officer, our special duty police officer there, I got sucker punched and had my jaw broken, you know, just all kinds of crazy things. And in the midst of all this, trying to do trauma therapy at the VA, I'm trying to be a husband and a father to three boys. I'm trying to figure out a next step and I'm doing grad school full-time with my GI bill. I'm trying to get a, I, I got a writing degree, a uh, master of fine arts and creative writing. And I'm trying to write a thesis about a chaplain and an infantry soldier in his unit to, as a way to try to process my, my trauma and drama, but it was just all awful. And so was it the, was it the, in the alcohol that just became the, just to kind of calm all of that stuff down? It's the only way I can get my brain to turn off and, you know, you can, your viewers will, we're on zoom and you can see it. And we've chatted once already. You've already figured out that I'm, I'm pretty wired up tight kind of guy. Like I actually feel calm right now, but I know, but I listen to myself talking. I'm like, Oh my God, <laughs> listeners are like, man, this guy's wired up tired. <laughs> Jack well, in the but box, I think you know? from, I mean, from what you just said, that whole part, like you started out as a, you're somebody that's a people pleaser. You're a perfectionist. You yeah. work hard and you go to the top. And so that's what you've done with every place that you've been. So that's admirable. Yeah. But in the, along the way, again, this is just my, you know, take on it in along the way, you've had this trauma. Yeah. And we've talked about this on this podcast that there's, and some people say, don't say big T or little T trauma or whatever, but there's been trauma in your life. Yeah. With your, your, with the combat and all of that. And as a result, you know, again, you're dysregulated, if you will, you have to, you're finding a way to take care of that trauma that happened in those memories and the, this and the things that come up. So it doesn't matter where you're at, unless you have some things in your tool belt that are better than drinking and drugs, then you're going to continue to follow that same path. That pattern is going to continue to repeat itself, whatever kind of job or position you're in, because you haven't found a way to deal with the trauma. Yeah. Again, we talk about that on this podcast all the time, that it's either the drinking or the drugs or the eating or the not eating or the porn or the what sex, whatever it is, there's something that's gone on and traumatized you. Yeah. And this is what you're choosing to, to soothe yourself with. I mean, that's what I see. And so I think it's admirable that you've identified that and said, okay, I'm going to take that out of it. But then in the meantime, you've got to find yeah. What are you going to do instead of that? Right. In order to calm your brain down, in order to, you know, be a working citizen, to be able to care for the kids and all that kind of stuff. You got to find something that, you know, is is dealing, helping you deal. Yeah. And for me, uh, you know, I've had undiagnosed ADHD that wasn't it wasn't until a year or two ago with my psychiatrist. I was like, could you screen me for this? And he's like, ask me two questions. And he's like, yeah, you're ADHD. I'll, pre I'll prescribe you something. And so that started to help. But like, you know, it's as somebody who is 
all those things that you described and ADHD, it's like, I cannot get my brain to turn off without anything except for a vigorous physical exercise, which the army, thankfully, I think the way I got away with it for all those years for literally half my life was just the first thing of the day in the army is you, you do exercise. And that's, that's what helps the ADHD brain is to get a lot of that stray voltage out. But these are things that I didn't, I didn't realize about myself, even though people had said to me a lot, like, have you ever been like, you know, do you think you have ADHD? And um, because that was so stigmatized, I always had this very like visceral reaction to it. like, no, no, no. Well, and, you know, and as an army officer, you're supposed to be, well, that would mean that I'm, you know, I don't have my shit together, but uh, it, which is ridiculous. It's, it's not the case, but here I am, uh, somebody who was a chaplain, who was a counselor and a caregiver, and somebody who was trying to teach other people, some of the, um, most high performing people in the military too, at how to not burn the candle at both ends and how to not sacrifice your family on the altar of your career. And yet I was doing all those things myself. And the only way that I found to cope with it was to drink. And here I am now as a nonprofit director for my church and drinking to cope. And now it's like, you know, it's not just a beer or two a night. It's like, I, I've got to have a few uh, just to calm down. And a lot of nights it just became several. And then, you know, every once in a while it would spike to, I would have a night where I would have 10 or more or whatever. And then, you know, there reached a, a, a point where I just, I kind of, I lost my mental marbles. The The church made this decision to close down the soup kitchen because an order of um, sisters were coming in from a different diocese to, that's their vocation is to run, is to do that type of ministry. And so um, this was during COVID now, uh, we're talking spring of 2020. And so just as I had gotten this organization kind of turned around and, and gotten all these logistical systems fixed and dealt with the barrage of complaints from everyone, <laughs> you know, the guests, because there were actually rules that I enforced and the volunteers who had volunteered there for 20 years, who expected me to run things a certain way. And I'm the age of their children. And so, mm-hmm. you know, I trying to establish credibility I finally, finally got to the place where I, got everything turned around. And then the the church made the decision to, to close it down because the building had these maintenance issues and blah, blah, blah. I won't go in too much into that, but it was really a kind of a, the final blow. And I, I ended up like my last day there, I, I had this mental break where I was drunk the night before and at 3 AM, I made this crazy plan where I booked a, a plane ticket, a train ticket, a a bus ticket and a rental car, all four of them paid for them and said, when I leave tomorrow morning or when I leave tomorrow at the end of the day, I'm going to pick one and I'm leaving because, you know, in the midst of all this, there'd been just massive marital strife and, you know, family, extended family challenges that have continued to this day, actually to this very day, actually. And like, it's just, that that's just life, right? This is adult life. We have to learn how to deal with these things um, without drinking or whatever. But I got to the point where I just, I couldn't deal anymore. And I was like, all I wanted to do was leave. And I had this crazy plan to go off the grid. And I'm talking like, I'm still like, I'm still buzzed driving into work. I bought a burner phone. I had $2,000 of cash in my pocket, my passport. I mean, like I was going to get on that plane and I was going to like, or wherever, and I was going to leave. And thankfully the special duty police officer that was there that day, on my last day is a fellow uh, veteran who is a, he was a Marine uh, who was blown up next to his buddy and had his, um, his buddy died and he had his back broken. And now he's um, this wonderful police officer who just recognized the signs. And he was like, are you okay? 
and you know, he was getting ready to leave for the day and I was getting ready to leave too. And he's like, are you all right, man? I'm like, no. And I, you know, I spilled the beans and he ended up, you know, getting me to the hospital and I am spending several days in the VA hospital. But so the VA got me, you know, put in through some, uh, a couple months worth of intensive outpatient recovery. We did it by zoom because it was COVID and it helped. It was, it was great. And I stayed sober for a year from the summer of 2020 till last summer, 2021. But by that point, um, I had to go back to work. Like I had taken unemployment. I had been day trading and making a lot of money day trading, like a lot of people did with stimulus, funny mm-hmm. money. And, the, you know, the market's awash with all this cash. And it's, it, it was easy. You buy something, it goes up like, oh, right. this, is, this is the best video game ever, right? Well, it was great until, you know, somebody who is ADHD and impulsive and uh, didn't, you know, should have been disciplined. I kept thinking, oh, I'm disciplined. I'm fine. I got this. No, it was totally turned into a gambler and lost it all. And then some, and, you know, and so then I'm depressed about that. And then we had some extended family drama that just really took us by surprise. And, you know, we just, oh God, it just feels like a bad country song about mm-hmm. a train wreck into a dumpster fire. It, I joke that my my initials aren't DK for Dana Crawl; it's for Drama King. Like I feel like drama mm-hmm. follows me everywhere I go, mm-hmm. and I'm trying to not have there be drama. But yes, to answer your question, many minutes ago, uh, or your comment many mm-hmm. minutes ago, since I've rambled here, like yeah, it, it the alcohol is what I was using just to cope, just to get by. And I knew it wouldn't last forever. It couldn't last forever, but it was all I knew how to do to quiet everything and to help me feel like, okay, it just for a little bit of time at the end of the day, I can look forward to at least a little bit of time when I don't have to worry about something and I can just turn my brain off. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And I think it's really, I mean, it's so important, everything that you shared. And as I shared before, we went live too. I mean, my son is in, one of our sons is in the Air Force and he's been in, you know, just started in December and he's loving it and having a good time. But, you know, it's also tough. You know, I visited him in uh, the month of August um, and I could see, and we talked about it a little bit, like it's, it's tough. It's tough work. He's a mechanic on the wonderful B2 stealth bombers. It's awesome position, Yeah, but it's tough. And so you know, I just have a heart for this. And I, as I said, I believe that's why you came into my atmosphere here so that we could talk about this because there is, I believe there's such a need in that area of the armed forces and the people that serve our country. It is not easy. And yeah. with everything that, again, I've talked about on this podcast, regardless in there or someplace else, we've got to find something to put, we got to find a way to cope. We have to find a way to deal with life because life is going to happen. And that's what I said to my son. Yeah, this is a tough time for you. And you are the peon. You are the low man on the totem pole. So there's part of that. And yes, there is those, you know, it's heavy work. So, but you you either quit or you got to figure out a way to deal with it and and let's do it in a, let's do it in a healthy way, if you will, or a smart way and things like that. And so, but again, I think there's plenty of people that are going to be listening to this, or hopefully they share it with their friend that was like, yeah, this is what's going on. Again, I went in to, to do noble work and man, it's getting the best of me. Yeah. You know? And, and it did it. I, I, I made it work as long as I could. And then I just, it, and then I started to break and that was, you know, thankfully, you know, that, that IOP two years ago helped me stay sober for a year, but then it was. Um, when I had to go back to work last summer, 
you know, I, the other part of the story that I left out is that my, my wife is trained as an educator. We had chosen a long time ago to homeschool our kids just because the military, it made it easier when I was home. Cause I was in units where, you know, I, I had weird work schedules or weird training. I'd be away for three weeks or away for three months or gone for 11, you know, however mm-hmm. I, my deployment or training cycle is going to be, then we could just kind of adjust around that. And it really worked for us. And so as civil, civilian family, we've chosen to continue that. But when I got to the point where I just job after job after job wasn't working, I was like, can I please, you know, stay home with the boys and give that a try. And so my wife very graciously, you know, went, went back to work so I could do that, but then, you know, it necessitated, like it was still necessary for me to work too, to make ends meet. And so when that happened last summer, I'm like, well, I'll try an early morning UPS job and, you know, I'll get out all this. It's I'll load trucks. It'll get out my, my energy and stuff. Well, four to 9 AM turned into one to 9 AM five days a week turned into six days a week because it was kind of a union bait and switch. And I'm not, not hacking on UPS. It's just, it wasn't the right fit for me. And so I switched to Amazon and throughout all this, I'm drinking and, you know, think, oh, well, if I start at 4 a.m. or I start at 1 a.m., then I won't drink as much. I won't be able to drink. No, I, I mean, when you are, when you, when you, when you need to want and need to drink, or you tell yourself you need to, then you'll find a way. And I did. And so I, by last fall around peak season in November, I said, well, I'll try Amazon from 11 p.m. to 4 a.m. Surely I won't, it'll be, then I'll come home and I'll go to sleep. I'll be exhausted because it was a, an Excel warehouse where we handle like the big, big stuff like appliances and all those other things. Mm-hmm. So um, yeah, no, it didn't work. I came home and drank myself to sleep from 4 PM until sunrise. And then, you know, woke up midday to, to do homeschooling and, you know, thankfully never woke up. Like I, I didn't, I never homeschooled my kids drunk. Uh, you know, there were times where I'm like hungover or, you know, I'm not feeling great. So I, I'm not winning father of the year award, but it was like, I, I was just trying to make it. And then again, I reached another breaking point about six months ago where I was like, I just feel like I'm failing at everything at life. Um, you know, I was this high performing guy and I've gone from, you know, all my peers uh, were commissioned. We were commissioned 20 years ago. My, my peers are retiring as colonels and mm-hmm. I left the military as a captain. And now here I am, you know, working in a warehouse job and there's nothing wrong with a warehouse job. Like I'm the son of a, mm-hmm. of a ship plant worker. You know, right. I was joked that my dad had a brown collar job, like that, you know, he had a shitty job and he did it and he did it faithfully. Yeah. And there's no shame in that. But for somebody like me who's been trained, like you got to go and exceed and excel. Well, here I'm feeling like crap. My current job is at Taco Bell. I, I, mm-hmm. I make tacos right now because that's what mm-hmm. I'm capable of doing. And it just, I, what happened when I recognized this past winter was I had started to give up on people. I'd started to give up on myself. I mean, things were so bad that I just said, like, I, I think I just need to go again. My, in the army, the way that we train our soldiers to deal with conflict is <laughs> armed conflict is you move to the sound of the gunfire. Like you run into the fight, uh, but we train our soldiers at home. You break contact. You don't, you don't fight. And I would never, ever lay a hand on my wife or our boys, but that reflex is there from training or training so many soldiers. Like if things get hot at home, like things get heavy or hot, whatever, you just, you, you leave leave. Yeah. because you don't want to ever even have the accusation that something happened. Right. And so um, (laughs) here I am, my reflex is to, is to leave. And um, I, left for a few days to go to this cheap hotel and drink basically. And what I, the thing that turned this thing around for me was um, 
I found an app. This is around New Year's before I had gotten to this breaking point again. Um, and I had started to, I was kind of a lurker. It's called the Reframe. It's available on um, iPhone only right now, but it's been a game changer. I, it's got a lot of resources. It teaches you about the neuroscience of uh, alcohol and what alcohol does to your body physiologically. And then it, it teaches you about the mental and the relational aspects of it. All of these things, which I knew, but which I, you know, again, physician heal thyself. It's like, I'm, I'm my own. I never practiced what I preached, but as I listened to these daily zoom calls, uh, which are sort of like AA in a sense that uh, you, there are shares and things like that. Um, but reframe takes a different approach than 12 step in some other ways. But I would listen into these calls and hear people being so candid and honest and 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 kind to themselves. The lady who's the very first guest on my own podcast, her name's Vonda Roney. She lives in Hoboken, New Jersey, and she is like my big sister. She had she's a couple weeks ahead of me in sobriety, and as she shared, I would listen to her share almost every day. And she's just this vivacious, just just a really inspirational person. But she. Um, She's also very intense and like very, you could tell very serious too. And that really resonated with me. And uh, Vonda shared a couple of weeks in that she had had a slip where she drank and she was so kind to herself uh, through that process. She said, you know what? She's like, damn it. I worked hard for those two weeks. I'm not resetting my day count. I'm still, I've been sober for 15 days. I had a slip. And um, even throughout her hundred, almost 200 days now, she's had a couple of slips and she said, no, I'm at 200 days because you know, it, in her mind, it's like, if you've drank three days out of a hundred, then you're still scoring a 97%. That's still something to be celebrated. It's not like you have mm-hmm. zero. So I was like, may that help remove some pressure for me. It was like, cause I'm such an all or nothing kind of guy. Yeah. But it was like, well, right. either I stop drinking for good and I can't ever have a drink ever again, or I can't, you know, or I'm just going to say, you know, have a case of the fuckets and just drink whatever I want. Right. There's no in between. Well, I realized that maybe I could give myself some grace to drink for a while and figure out what I wanted and needed to do. And I just kind of told myself when I'm ready, I'll do it. And there came a point February 16th, where I'm like alone in a cheap hotel room with, you know, getting drunk. I had driven to work drunk and like, I mean, this is like, who am I? I'm like, who am yeah. I? What, who is doing this? And it came to the point where I said, uh, this, now I'm ready and plugging in there. I got connected with Vonda and she <laughs> plugged me in with a group of several other, several other women who are like all like my sisters. They're like my big sisters. And I text them. And whenever I have problems, have cravings, I almost texted them last night. I was having a really rough night last night. Um, and thankfully I worked until after uh, you can legally buy beers. So the temptation wasn't as bad, but I was close to texting them last night and saying, ladies, I need you to walk me through this and make sure that I don't mm-hmm. drink. So well, and the fact that you found, you know, that support, it's so, it's so key. I think with many things in life is to have those accountability people. And certainly in this um, time that, especially because you're still new into it, you know, and I don't know, I shouldn't necessarily make that judgment just because you're new no, into it. It's going to be I'm more a baby. tempting, yeah. but you know, I mean, you are a baby in it, but you know, yeah. I'm sure there's other people that perhaps they are many years into it and they still have some of those strong things. I say that for that, but yeah, again, it sounds like that's what you found. That's really keeping you on this straight, you know, straight path. And like we talked about before, now you started a podcast and you want to share with yeah. other people to maybe help. And that's why, 
you know, I started this too, was if we could share some stories and people feel like they're not alone and they can listen and go, wow, there's somebody else that's going through what I'm going through. Yeah. Then, and then that's good. Again, you feel like you're not alone in this journey of life struggle, you know, decisions that you, you know, made. I like to spend a little bit of time um, just always to kind of talk about relationships. Cause I know like with my daughter, as she, you know, she started to struggle and I'm the mom. And then all of a sudden I have to be like the police to be like, okay, you can't do that. You can't do this. Or to be that, you know, really strong, you know, it's, it changed our relationship and now she's in a much better place. And so our relationship is different. It's better, but I know that it changes that. So how did that, like, I mean, your wife's stuck with you, your kids are with you. I mean, how has that relationship those relationships is she the one that called you out or is she your best support or how are things going in that arena it has been especially hard on her because um you know she's trying to hold everything together she's trying to be you know she's trying to take care of our our three sons and trying to she you know worried about me and i'm trying and i'm trying to hold it together for them but i'm but i'm not doing a great job there and and i one of my main concerns when i both times 2 years ago I remember telling her, like, I don't want you to feel like you have to be my handler or like you have to be my like you have to be my mom and, you know, you have to be the police with me. That's not fair to her. And so I tried to self-police, but it didn't didn't really work. And she didn't feel like she could could do that. And rightfully, rightfully so. I don't think it would be fair for me to expect her to do that. But, you know, what's happened is that I I needed I there there's just been some extended family issues where the close relationships that I had there have just not been what I thought they were going to be. And so I was trying to lean too heavily on her and that was, uh, it was too much. And it took me finding a community outside of my biological family uh, to, I I have what I call now a logical family. And I didn't coin that. It's one of my coaches on the reframe app talks about you, you have your biological family that you're related to, and you may share a last name with, but you have your logical family that understands you for who you are as somebody who struggled with and or still struggles with addiction and uh, what that means, what it means to be in recovery and how that impacts every area of your life and how all the emotions and the challenges that go along with that. And so what really had to happen was I had to find someone, I had to find some people who could be could be there for me without placing that pressure on my wife. And so again, it may sound strange to some of your <laughs> listeners that I'm on a text group with several women who aren't my wife, but like they're they really mm-hmm. are like my sisters. Like they are the the first people that I would that I would go to if I were having an issue. And I have there have been moments where I was like in this craving and I'm like, I know I'm not going to drink and all likelihood I'm not going to drink but the temptation is very strong and I'm capable of anything. So I'm going to text them and make sure for that mm-hmm. accountability. And so what happened is I just made a, a, a transition to a, a, you know, we've got, you know, the nuclear family here at, at the house, my wife and our three sons are my entire world. They're the, in concentric circles. It feels like we lost our army family, we lost uh, extended family. Now we've like, we've got each, each other. And thankfully we have, you know, our, our parents that are here for us that, um, have been so supportive and everything. So I'm not making it sound like I don't have any biological family at all, but I'm just saying like, in terms of my recovery, 
uh, it's the logical family of people that I've met on the reframe app that we've exchanged Instagram handles. And we have Instagram chat groups that I started that where we just, we, we just chat about life and we share life. And I've got all these brothers and mm-hmm. sisters across the, across the world. I mean, this isn't just across the U S that there's, yeah. you know, we've got a friend in Australia. I've got UK friends who, uh, and others I've got, I've made a friend in the Ukraine, uh, who, you know, we've mm. become kind of like podcast peers and um, encouraging each other. And so like, it's, it's just been such a special thing, but it took me stepping outside of my comfort zone. And here I am an, an effusively extroverted, energetic person who is always like, Hey, what's, Hey, I meet you on a plane. Here's my life story. But I had gone into a, a hole where I was like, I didn't want to be around people mm-hmm. and I didn't trust anybody anymore. And it took me stepping back out of that hole with th- Vonda really was, I call her the spark that I needed to stop the madness. That's what I called my, again, my first episode of the podcast, mm-hmm. Vonda Roni, the spark that I needed to stop the madness. And it, and it really has made all the difference to have those brothers and sisters uh, who are there for me unconditionally all times a day or night, no matter what's going on at home or what's going on outside of home with work or anything else, they are right there for me at any time in any place. I don't know if this really answered your question, but just. No, well, no. I mean, I think that that's, again, I hope that people can hear that and understand that because again, it can be 12 steps. It can be the reframe. It can be anything, but it is. And I've seen that again with um, our daughter here, you know, you want to help. Um, and I encourage you, uh, listeners. And if you haven't listened to it yourself, um, I was able to interview a gal who my daughter met when she was in treatment, but then I interviewed her husband and just to get that spouse perspective too. And so you want to help, but there's also this point. And if you've ever seen that show or the movie, the beautiful boy, Mm. I mean, it's a great one that, you know, with, uh, Steve Carell, who, you know, I don't, I don't care for the office, but man, once I saw him in that movie, I have a lot of respect for him. I mean, he's just a brilliant actor. And it was that time that like his, did you see the movie? I I didn't, not yet, but I think I know which one you're talking about. Well, and you know, the son, um, uh, who is a drug addict, um, he calls home and he's like, I want to come home and I want to recover around you and stuff like that. I have to be by my family. And like Steve Carell, like sitting there and he's like pausing and he's like, call your sponsor. I love you. Call your sponsor. And it's like, you have to, it's, it's the boundary setting and it's the, you know what I can, I can love you, but you have to, you have to call your sponsor. You have to, you need to check in with this group. Those people understand again, where you're at, they can support you in different ways. And it just, it has to be that like, at least from like your wife's perspective, my perspective, you know, the caregiver it's like you have to kind of surrender it over to like, hey, I'm not the expert and I I hear you. I'm sorry you're going through a rough time. I love you. And yeah. how are you going to get help for yourself? Can't be me, you know? And um, and I think for those that are used to taking care of others, like I'm a nurse by schooling, you know, you're a chaplain and all that. You're used to caring for others. For us to ask for help, it can it be really, kind of a yeah. tough thing, yeah. you know, to say, Oh, you know, I need help. Like, oh, that means I'm really worthless and useless and stuff like that. That's what I, or I'm not capable. That's what I came to believe about myself when I needed help. But I also have reframed it, if you will, into saying that we need support. Like I need support. And sometimes it can be like, I need to talk to, or, you know, we need to talk to somebody in our support group, or maybe it's, Hey, can we go for a walk together? I got to go to a movie or guess what? I'm going to go do something by myself because that's the support that I need 
for myself. So I'm glad that you found that because again, I think that that's a pivotal part in anybody's recovery is to find people that can support you, but also call you out on your bullshit, you know, because they can call you out. Like you're somebody who's been in the same situation as you can be like, Hey dude, I think Mm. you're like, you know, you're lying to me or whatever. So you need people to, to love you, support you and call you out in order to keep you on that straight path. Yeah. I'm so glad you talked about, uh, you gave the example of saying, going to a movie by yourself. Like I've got a a friend, a a chaplain friend who um, that's his thing. Like he goes to take care his self-care is he goes and sees a movie, you know, alone. And those are the kinds of things that I, I never really allowed myself when I was in the midst of all of the the ministries or the works or whatever I was doing, it was like, well, I, it's too selfish to take care of myself. And, you know, especially when you're, well, I don't want to make it sound like it's, you know, like it's a special class of challenge. It's just a different kind of challenge to be a parent. Like, I don't know if you or your listeners can hear like the thumping above me right now. That's like the, you know, like two younger ones, like running around upstairs right now. And there are times where as like, I know my wife, it's hard for her to say, I need some time to myself and just go. And there are times from like, you need to go, just go do something alone right. for an hour or two or something. And you know, whatever it is that, that feeds you, like you have to do those things, um, especially in recovery. But even if, you know, someone's listening and they're like, I don't know if I have, maybe I have a problem, maybe I drinking or with an, some kind of addiction, or I'm not sure doesn't matter where we're at in life. Like we all have to take care of ourselves. And that is actually one of the more selfless things that we can do is to, is to take care of ourselves so that we can take care of other people, whatever that looks like for you. So I'm so glad that you said that you don't have to be this extroverted. Like you don't have to find your own Vonda and you don't have to start Instagram chat groups. You don't have to start a podcast. Like I did. That's just my personality. That was me. Like I want to have a, I want to have this mm-hmm. extra public layer of accountability. And I knew that I had so much shame surrounding some of the things that had happened for me um, with my military service that I needed to be able to say those things out loud and start to really work through them. Not everybody has to air their stuff publicly. And in fact, most people, it's probably not, no, not but, good for but there too. was a, there, yeah. yeah, well, but there was a gentleman who, I don't know if you've heard of him, uh, Chris Heron. He was a basketball player um, and uh, I think, I mean, a pro player maybe for, I don't know, it doesn't matter, but he, um, yeah. I mean, he's lucky to be alive, but he um, just got messed up with drugs and all that. But he goes around and he, I mean, you can, you can look him up. He goes around and he speaks to groups, um, to high school groups. And he came to our high school many years ago, has a tremendous story and um, really speaks so well to the kids, like gets in their face and like, you know, and, um, and just has yeah. a heart to help people. Like, as he, I mean, we live in a very nice upper middle-class, you know, suburb, have a, you know, very well-renowned school that the kids go to. And he's like, yeah, I see all these kids and they're wearing their yeah. whatever Uggs and whatever the Hollister jeans and they're, you know, injecting, you know, drugs between their toes, yeah. you know, I mean, things like that. And, um, but he, the point is he speaks. Right. Cause it's part of his accountability. Because the more he talks about his story, the more it keeps him on, it keeps him in the straight and narrow. He doesn't have a story if he falls off, you know? And so it's good that you can find that. And, you know, as we kind of wrap up our time together, there's a couple of uh, groups that I'm going to refer you to um, that I've found 
because I we talked a little bit about this, like again, the support for the military and for the PTSD and stuff like that. And um there are a couple, and I told you I have a wellness business, and there's a couple of gals that well, one gal on my team who started a nonprofit that's called Support Over Stigma, and they support active military and those that are um veterans with different care packages and different different things. And I don't know all that much about it, but Zoe is super involved with that because she has kids in her family that are, you know, lots of people in her family that have been in the military. And then there's another gal that I met. She's a friend of my sister's and she started a nonprofit too. I don't know so much about that, but I, I'll give you the name once I <laughs> find it again. But it's about providing a holistic place for healing, for wellness, for the veterans. And I feel like, I know you're new into this and we, you know, we talked a little bit about like trying to serve that military population and you're not really there yet. And again, you're still kind of, you know, on your path here, but I just feel like there's, there's a big need out there for, I'm sure there's more than one person that's gone through something very similar to you and is then out like floundering and like, you know, trying to find their way and um, having these issues. And I love the fact that you're getting a, you know, a dog to help you, you know, with emotional support dog. I think that's great. Like we need to find ways to help ourselves, but then find ways to help other people by sharing that or be parts of organizations or things like that. No, a hundred percent. And I think that, you know, on my podcast, I introduce it as, you know, the, well, I, it's called the, the podcast where we're for newly sober people learning to love ourselves instead of booze. But an earlier permutation of that tagline had been, you know, it's a podcast for newly sober people who want to stay that way and find community while they're at it. And part of my mm-hmm. intro is, you know, I say that um, I finally learned the, uh, the not so secret uh, solution to staying sober, which is, in my opinion, it's finding and contributing to a community. Like you, you are going to need at least one person. Like you, you may not need to have hundreds of people. Like I, like I found again, mm-hmm. you may not need to do this big grandiose thing, or even join an Instagram chat group or or something like that. But you will need at least one person uh, to connect with. And you know, it, just speaking to your your listeners here, like I, I don't want to. I don't presume to tell you how to live your life. All I can tell you is what's worked for me for six months of sobriety. And I can tell you, I would not be here without the people that I've connected with. And I've needed at least that Vonda. You find, if there's somebody that speaks to you, um, that, that is an encouragement to you and an inspiration to you, then reach out to that person. You know, if that's more, if that's me, if that's somebody else that you hear on this podcast or another one, uh, if it's somebody that you run into in your life, reach out to that person and just connect with them and find a way to, to allow yourself to be served, but then find a way to serve them. One of my mm-hmm. keys to the first six months has just been serving and, and getting the focus off myself because I'm a professional navel gazer and I can ruminate with the best of them. So mm-hmm. yeah, I'm so glad yeah. you said that. That's the the critical component is connection, uh, not just to be connected to receive, but also to give. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that's a great way. I think that's a great way to wrap it all up today. Um, you know, I think it really is. Uh, and I really appreciate your your honesty and your openness. Um, I mean, I remember, and again, that whole shame piece, I'll leave it with, like, again, I remember what Chris Heron said, like his wife said to him, you know, when he was um, better and, and more healthy. And she's like, wow, you're shaving like, you know, you used to shave in the shower. You know, and he's like, she said, you're shaving out in the bathroom, like in front of the mirror. He goes, yeah, I shaved in the shower because I didn't want to look at myself. I was so ashamed of myself. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's there's that component of 
Um, I've heard that from my daughter. I've heard that from many on this podcast of like, there sh- we get so ashamed of these mistakes we've made and this shit that we've gotten ourselves into. And we just yeah. don't even sometimes want to look at e- ourselves. But there's also, I don't know who, I don't know if you remember or know who it is, but there's also like mirror work that you can do. Oh yeah. <laughs> that yeah. for healing, like that you can stand in front of the mirror for whoever does that, you know, for five minutes and tell yourself that you love yourself like 10 times and you yeah. got to do that every day. And that's really, even for the best of us, that's very hard. It's uncomfortable. It's very hard to do. Super yeah. uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't right. like it, but it's necessary and I'm still working. It's necessary. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So yeah, you'll find Dana, your podcast is called I Kissed Alcohol Goodbye, right? That's the... Yep. Yeah. And where you find him on Instagram, any other last words or places that that people can connect with you or last words for the audience? Yeah. I mean, um, there's, you know, email me at, um, you know, I kissed alcohol goodbye at gmail.com. I'm at I kissed alcohol goodbye.com. Basically just Google it. And it's one of the first things that comes up. If you'd like to find the podcast on Apple or whatever listening platform, you're on, you can get to it there, uh, or just Instagram message me on Instagram, email me. If I can be any kind of support to you, it would be my honor and privilege. Again, thanks for listening, everybody. We do appreciate you coming back and listening and sharing it with others so that we can continue, um, our mission of offering people hope. So thanks again, Dana. And, uh, we'll talk to you later. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, head over to iTunes and leave me a five-star review. Share it with others and make sure you hit the subscribe button so you don't miss a thing. I've got a tribe over on Facebook, so head over there and search for Juggling the Chaos of Recovery Podcast Tribe. And do you know somebody who has a story, a story to share, a story of recovery and hope? Please let me know as I'd love to feature them as a guest on one of these next upcoming podcasts. And perhaps you're looking for a community of like-minded, collaborative, and supportive people who cheer each other on as we strive to improve our lives. If that sounds like something you've been looking for, schedule some time with me. You'll find the links in the show notes. Let's talk and let me help you find your way. And I'm here to tell you that you're worth it.